Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and to turn them open to Mark chapter 15 to the passage we're going to be looking at together over these next few moments. Uh, You'll notice that we didn't have the passage read for us like we normally do prior to this moment, and that's because I wanted to take a, a minute to frame this passage for you before reading it to you, because to be honest with you, this is one of those passages, and in a sense, all the Bible is kind of like this, but there are certain passages that kind of have this effect uh, in ways that, that seem to be unique in my own discipleship and my own relationship, and that is that this is one of those texts that uh, causes me to tremble. This is one of those passages that I, I, I always feel very ill-equipped to communicate and to expound and trying to bring the power of it to bear on our lives, and it's, it's, a, it's, a pa- it's a passage dealing with the story of Christ's crucifixion. Charles Spurgeon, a pastor out of the uh, 19th century in England, he uh, used words to describe his interaction with uh, Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I think his words you applied to that text uh, apply to tonight's passage as well, at least from my estimation. This is what he says. He says, here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation, more so than human language. And so I say that because together we're treading on some of the holiest ground in all of the Bible. The story of Christ crucified is the hinge point of human history. It is the hope for our eternity. Christ crucified is everything. Christ crucified is that moment in human history that ignited a process and provides the power for all that is wrong in the world to be made right. But understand that that process and that power of making the world right, it begins first with those who would look to Christ crucified and and see all that Christ crucified reveals about them and what Christ crucified reveals about him. And so as we walk through this story tonight, I want us to try to do so with fresh eyes, as familiar as you might be with the story of his crucifixion. I want you to consider what does this passage, what does this story reveal about What's wrong with me and, and what's right with Jesus? What, what does it say about us and what does it say about him? And so let's just listen to the passage and then we'll talk about it for a moment. Verse 21, it says, And they, referring to the soldiers, compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. I like that name, Rufus. That's a fun one. I wanted to get Colin and Lauren McMillan to name their new baby Rufus, but their baby turned out to be a girl and doesn't quite fit, but Rufus. And, and they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but, it, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This is the story of Christ crucified told through Mark from Mark's point of view. Mark, of course, is one of four gospel writers who tells the story of the crucified Christ. And the way he depicts the story in his gospel puts a, a peculiar and a unique emphasis on you and I because he, pred- he predicts the story in such a way that shows that the story of Christ crucified reveals what's wrong with us. Because what you find in this story from start from 21 all the way to verse 32 is you see this collective, kind of a climactic manifestation of the fallen human condition. You find a description of, of people and Mark's account indiscriminately depicts our sin and our waywardness because you have everybody involved in the scene and nobody's positive. You have religious officials, you have robbers, you have Roman officials, you have soldiers, you have men and women, rich and poor, religious and irreligious. It is an indiscriminate depiction of the fallen human condition. In other words, the story of Christ crucified puts all of us in the crosshairs. You see, this isn't one of those stories that we read and think, well, it's us and then it's them that do that type of thing to Jesus. It's us and it's them that, that have that type of uh, posture towards Christ or towards God. Or it, it, It's us and them. No, this is a story that puts us all in one bucket and it's us. We're all supposed to see ourselves in the way in which the people are treating Jesus, treating Christ, treating the Son of God in this story. And so let's make note of some of the particulars. It's Starts off in verse 21. Jesus has been beaten so badly that he can't pick himself up. So the soldiers recruited a guy by the name of Simon, Simon of Cyrene to come and carry the cross. And Mark makes mention of his two sons, and which is an interesting thing for Mark to do because it, 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 those names really serve no purpose. Except, chances are, Mark is including them in this depiction because those two sons are now followers of Jesus living in the church at Rome to whom Mark is writing Chances are very high that these two boys heard the story of Christ crucified from their father Simon who carried his cross and that story stuck with them. That story changed them and so much so that chances are high they became followers of Jesus themselves and they're present in the church that Mark is writing his gospel to and the church that Mark's writing his gospel for. But notice what happens in verse 22. It says they bring Jesus to a place called Golgotha 
which means a place of the skull. Understand that this is a location outside of the Jerusalem city walls. This is a marginalized place. That's the first thing that happens to Jesus in this passage is that he is marginalized. He is brought away from the temple. He is put outside the city walls. So rather than enthroning King Jesus, they marginalize Jesus. And you think about the intersection that has with our lives. Understand that in our sin, we too, in a myriad of ways, marginalize Christ. We have all marginalized him. We've all pushed him to the fringes of our lives. Instead of letting him take his seat on the throne of our hearts, we've pushed him to the fringes. We say, okay, Jesus, you, you can be down with my spiritual life, but all the other parts of my identity, all the other parts of my understanding of humanity, all my other uh, aspects of my life, you, you, you're my spiritual side, but, but when it comes to my physical side or my sexual side or my gender side or my race side or my job side or my hobby side, that, that, that's, that's governed by something else. It's not governed by you. you you're, you're the spiritual portion of of my life, but you're not governing all of it as rightful king. We've all been there in different ways. We've all marginalized Christ, although he is intended to be honored as king, the center focal point of our identity, the center focal point of the lives that we're leading. We often push him to the fringes. We marginalize him. We, we do what these guys are doing. We do figuratively what they're doing to Jesus literally in this moment. But then you move on to verse 24, and you find as they move to Golgotha, and as Jesus is being crucified, it says, Then they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. They're, they're playing games at the foot of the cross. They're gambling over the garments of Jesus. You see what they're doing in that moment is trivializing Christ, aren't they? And you think about the intersection that has with our own response to Jesus and how we treat Jesus so often in our sin, we trivialize Christ as well. We play games with Christ. We don't take his teachings seriously. We don't take his word seriously. We don't, we don't listen to him uh, when he says, you, when he challenges us to go to the defense of the defenseless, to care for those who are hurting, to give voice to the voiceless. He, we, we don't listen to Jesus when he says, as the Father has sent me into the world, so I am sending you into the world to be my ambassadors, to be my representatives. We, we hear that and we, we just end up playing games with that, picking and choosing what aspects of his teachings Teaching we want to obey, what aspects of his teaching we want to believe, what aspects of his teaching we want to submit to, all the while we're trivializing Jesus, making him appear to be much smaller than he really is. And one day we're going to be surprised when he returns and we see how big and glorious and grand Christ is, and we're going to, we're going to celebrate because he's gracious, but at the same time, I think there's going to be a little bit of cringing within us as we think, how often have we trivialized this great and glorious king? How often have we played games with Christ? But then you move on from verses 25 to verse 30, and he's starting to be mocked by everyone in attendance. It was the third hour, that means around nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him, and they posted a sign above him, mocking him as the king of the Jews, and they stuck him between two robbers, and then it says those who passed by began to wag their heads, and listen to what they say. They say, aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself and come down from the cross. They bring the temple back up. We've seen this over and over and over again as we've journeyed through Mark, accusing Jesus, or really, um, they, they viewed Jesus Jesus is a threat to their identity because he came to replace the temple. Well, they're bringing all of that back up, and they're making fun of Jesus again. And by alluding to the temple and referring to what Jesus said about how he had come to replace the temple, we're reminded of how 
though they replaced God with the temple, they viewed the temple as an end in and of itself rather than the means to an end. And you think about the intersection that has with our lives and that in our sin, we too have replaced Christ. We too have taken gifts and treated them as gods. We too have taken things that he's blessed us with and, and rather than letting that turn back to praise towards him, we've, we've looked to those blessings in and of themselves to be all that we think we need as we journey through this world. We, in our sin, have replaced Christ with all kinds of aspects of the created order. For them it was the temple. For you it's something else. For them it was the temple. For me it was something else. We've all replaced Christ in our sin. That's what we, that's what we do. That's what, it's just how we are. Then in verses 31 and 32, you see the chief priests. They begin to mock uh, Jesus even more. It says in verse 31, So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe They're asking Jesus to do something to prove that he is the Son of God, to prove that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. They are mocking Jesus. In a sense, they're mocking him by testing him. They're doing to Jesus what Satan did to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 6. There's a moment in Matthew chapter 4, verse 6, where Jesus takes, I mean, sorry, Satan uh, leads Jesus to the temple, and listen to what goes down. It says, Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, testing him, saying, Prove yourself. That's precisely what these guys at the foot of the cross are doing to Jesus. They're testing him, saying, prove yourself. How often do we, too, in our sin, test Christ? How often do we test Christ by putting conditions on our discipleship? We say things like, well, I'll follow you, Jesus, if you do that. Or I'll follow you, Jesus, if you give me this or give me that. Or if you come through for me on this front. And we just pick and choose aspects of, or we apply conditions to our discipleship all the while we're testing him. We're mocking him. We're, we're echoing the same spirit that is present in this passage as the religious leaders are asking Jesus to prove himself in a mocking, in a mocking manner. But then in verse 32, it ends with those who were crucified with him also reviled with him. So everybody is hating Jesus. Everyone is blasting Jesus. Everyone is sinning against Jesus. But notice that Jesus never responds to their mocks. He never responds to their jeers. He never takes up their challenges. He never says, okay, I'll show you. He doesn't come down from the cross. He doesn't call for angels to come and help him in this moment. What you find in Jesus is you find him surrendering in total vulnerability to the malevolence and the violence of the world in which he came. Whereas this passage on one hand reveals all that is wrong with us and we should see our sin when we read the story of the crucified Christ. On the other hand, this story reveals all that's right with Jesus. This story reminds us of why we love Jesus, why we trust Jesus, why we worship Jesus, why we look to Jesus because of how he responded in this moment with silence and how he responded in this moment by staying on the cross and dying a horrid death. So the story would go on in verse 33, really zeroing in on what Christ endured and what Christ did. This story revealing what is right about him. And what you find in how Jesus didn't respond to the mocking and the jeering and the challenges being launched at him, you see Jesus denying himself. 
He's not in this moment trying to save himself. He's denying himself so that he might save you and me. That's the irony of verses 30 and 31. Jesus exercising self-denial for our sake. He knows that it's more important for him and his love for you and for me to stay on the cross. And that's precisely what he does. Even though on the cross things get incredibly intense, more intense than you and I could ever possibly imagine. It says in verse 33 that the sixth hour, now this is about noon. It says there was a a darkness over the whole land into the ninth hour. Or, yeah, from from 9 to 12, sorry, sixth sixth hour is 9 o'clock, ninth hour is noon, and from that time, sorry, that's not right, sixth hour is noon, and ninth hour is 3. From that whole time, darkness covered the land. When it was supposed to be the most brightest, it was at its darkest. And one of the things we got to think about as we consider this, I mean, just, just think about the implications of that. As Jesus is hanging on the cross at noon, Everything goes dark. It's as though the heavens themselves are grieving. It's as though the heavens themselves are grieving as Christ is being crucified. And the reason for that, you understand, the reason for that is because of what darkness symbolizes all throughout the Bible. Darkness never symbolizes anything good. If you ever see that metaphor, that image used in Scripture, it's never something positive, it's always something negative. Usually when you read about darkness in the Bible, it refers to divine judgment. It's setting the stage for how we are to interpret what Jesus would suffer on the cross. Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, for example, when the Lord brought his judgment upon Egypt in order to bring deliverance to his people from Egyptian slavery, listen to what's described Exodus 10, 21, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. It was judgment. It was an eerie darkness. It was one of those darknesses that that just, you, you could feel its depth. It was divine judgment coming in that form. And then later, one of the prophets, a guy by the name of Amos, in Amos chapter 8, verse 9, he would talk about a day when this type of judgment would come into the world. And he says this, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. All of it saying what Jesus is doing on the cross, he's about to endure divine judgment. It's a big deal what happens when everything goes dark. Now, I find it interesting that over the past 25 years in pop culture, we, we've, we've got writers and artists and storytellers who are recognizing uh, how um, that there's something wrong with the world, and some of whom have even envisioned storylines that depict uh, the need for judgment and the need for judgment to come to the world and a kind of a purging or a cleansing. You, you got movies like, uh, let's take The Matrix, the original Matrix, for example. You had a a villain in that story named Agent Smith. And listen to what the writer said uh, as Agent Smith is surveying humanity. He describes humanity as a virus, saying human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. He proclaims, you're a plague and we are the cure. Then later, one of my favorite movies, Batman Begins, you have the villain of that one, Ra'al Ghul, who leads the League of Shadows. And he tells Batman this. He says, Gotham's time has come. Like Constantinople and Rome before it, the city has become a breeding ground for suffering and injustice. It is beyond saving and must be allowed to die. This is the most important function of the League of Shadows. It is one we've performed for centuries. 
And then later when he faces off with Batman, he says this. He says, the League of Shadows has been a check against human corruption for thousands of years. We sacked Rome, loaded trade ships with plague rats, burned London to the ground. Every time a civilization reaches the pinnacle of its decadence, we return to restore the balance. Judgment being brought to bring a purging, to bring a cleansing. These writers are recognizing this, this idea of judgment and maybe the world is in a situation that needs this type of action. But the problem with these writers and how they talk about judgment coming into the world is that these writers, other than the, the, the protagonists of those stories who come in and defeat the villain to keep judgment from, at bay, they, offer, they really offer no hope. They, they kind of give the impression that salvation and judgment are antithetical, that the two can't coexist. But when you step into the gospel, what do you find? You don't find salvation and judgment as antithetical. You find salvation coming to us through judgment. You find the one God judging the world or judging the Savior in order to bring salvation to the world. Salvation and judgment in the gospel are not antithetical. They exist in perfect, perfect harmony as Jesus hangs on the cross. So when you think about the judgment that he's enduring, the, the darkness that has come upon the land, you think, okay, Jesus is being judged. Something unique is happening to Jesus in that moment. I'll give you a few descriptions found, in the, found throughout the scriptures describing what Jesus endured in the darkness as he hung upon the cross. Listen to what it says. It says, Isaiah chapter 53, we're told that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. John chapter 1, verse 29, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. You see, as darkness enshrouded Jesus, divine judgment then fell upon him. This is why Jesus would cry out in the dark in verse 34. Mark tells us he screamed out in Aramaic, which makes sense. That's what Jesus would have spoken. Then he provides a translation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quotation from Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. And Psalm 22 actually reverberates all throughout the whole crucifixion. There are onlookers who hear Jesus' cry and they mistake Jesus' cry thinking, well, maybe he's asking Elijah for help because Elijah was a righteous man who didn't see death. Maybe Elijah's going to come and spare Jesus from his suffering, bring relief to him on the cross. Only Elijah doesn't come and they're mistaking what Jesus is crying on the cross. And I think we have a temptation to mistake what Jesus is crying on the cross too. You see, there are some who read Jesus' words and they say, well, this must be, uh, Jesus couldn't have really been forsaken in that moment. That's just a cry of perception. He just perceived himself to be forsaken. He, he felt it, but he really wasn't forsaken. And, and so some would hear the cry that way. Others would say, well, this is a cry of unbelief. Jesus is, is showing unbelief in that moment. Others would say it's a cry of doubt or confusion or despair 
But no, I think if we take Psalm 22 into consideration and if we think well about the gospel tonight and if we're thinking humbly about what the cross says about what's wrong with us and what the cross says about what's right with Jesus, it will help us come to an understanding of what his cry is all about. You see, when Jesus cries from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think he's identifying his actual position before the Father in that moment. You see, this is a waking nightmare. Only what is taking place isn't confined to Jesus' subconscious. What is taking place is affecting his entire person. Understand that when Jesus makes this cry in the dark, this is a cry of physical agony. There's physical agony going on when Jesus cries these words. And how does that hit you? How does that hit you to know that Christ would cry out in physical agony? How does that affect the physical agony you have felt journeying through a broken world such as this? There's a guy by the name of John Stott who would think about Jesus' physical agony on the cross, and this is what he would say, and I find his words very helpful. He says, you know, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. You see, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have to turn away. And in imagination, I have to turn instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. He said, that is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings, get this, become more manageable in light of his. He, his cry was a cry of physical agony, and there's something real there. There's something right about Jesus being willing to identify with us in that way, to suffer in ways that the world suffers and has suffered all throughout human history. There, there's something right about Jesus when he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it's not just a cry of physical anguish. This is a cry of spiritual or physical agony, it's a cry of spiritual anguish. It's spiritual anguish being declared. I mean, just think, we are saying, this is what, I want to say this in no uncertain terms. Jesus experienced divine judgment on the cross. There is spiritual anguish to what Christ is experiencing when he dies there. This is what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 is all about. When we are told, for our sake, God made him, referring to Jesus, to be sin, to be sin who knew no sin. Just think about that. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. Spiritual anguish, the likes of which you and I in Christ will never feel, will never go here in our journey with Jesus. We'll never experience this type of judgment because Jesus is experiencing, because Jesus endured it, because Jesus went through this. Now, I know that saying that Jesus 
was judged on the cross. Sometimes we can hear that and just kind of keep it in the abstract. It doesn't really mean much personally and in a concrete expression, which is why I want to share with you a description. It's one of the most moving descriptions I've read about what Jesus experienced on the cross. And of course, it's imaginative, but I think it's real. And it takes the judgment Jesus felt on the cross or he endured on the cross seriously. I want you to listen to what What's described, what this writer describes. He says, The thorns that God had sent to curse the earth's rebellion now twisted around his brow. His back, buttocks, and the rear of his legs felt the whip. Soon they looked like the plowed Judean fields outside the city. By the time the spitting is through, more saliva is on him than in him. No longer can he be recognized. Up on Skull Hill to the welcome of other poorly paid legionnaires enjoying themselves. One raises a mallet to sink in the spike, but the soldier's heart must continue pumping as he readies the prisoner's wrist. Someone must sustain the soldier's life minute by minute, for no man has that power on his own. Who supplies breath to his lungs? Who gives energy to his cells? Who holds his molecules together? We're told in Colossians chapter 1 that only by the Son do all things hold together. Only by Christ do all things hold together. The victim wills that the soldier live on. Do you, do you get that? The victim wills that the soldier driving nails into his hand lives on. He grants the warriors continued existence. The man swings. As the man swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the, med the medial nerve of the human forearm, the sensations it would be capable of. The design proves flawless. The nerve performs exquisitely. They lift the cross. God is on display in his underwear and can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread, he begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly foul odor began to waft, waft, not around his nose, but in his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father... He must face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane, and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so, never felt even the least of his hot breath, but the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The son does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk. You who molest young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, to start revolutions, to torture animals and worship demons? Does the list never end? 
splitting families, raping victims, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting brides, bribes. You have turned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate, I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course, the son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself, and the father knows this. But the divine pair have an agreement. And the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. His cry on the cross was a cry of spiritual anguish. Your sin was placed upon him. The judgment you deserve, he endured. This is what he's going through. This is why he's crying. This is why he's screaming. But you go one step further. Not only physical agony, spiritual anguish, this is a cry of relational alienation. He is separated from his father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a, there's a sense of separation between the son and the father. And you've got to ask, what type of separation is that? I mean, is it even possible to be separated from an omnipresent God? The psalmist would say, no, Psalm 139, where shall I go to flee your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of dead, you are there. You can't flee the presence of of an all-present God. So what type of separation are we talking about? Well, it's not the type of separation that I have with my dad right now where I'm here in Seattle and my dad's in Louisiana. It's not that type of geographical, physical separation that we're talking about. When Jesus was separated from the Father, understand, he wasn't separated geographically or physically from the Father. The Father was present when when the Son was crucified. But the Father was present in wrath and judgment. What this means, get this, What this means is that Jesus Christ went through hell on the cross. He experienced hell on the cross. You see, hell does not mean the absence of God. The the hell refers to the presence of God's wrath and judgment. I don't think you can go to hell to escape God. He's... Everywhere. The question is, what type of experience with God will you have? Will you experience his grace and mercy for all eternity, or will you experience his wrath and his judgment? Understand that Jesus did not endure what he endured on the cross so that you would experience wrath and judgment. Jesus went through hell on the cross so you and I never have to. That's the hope of the gospel. That's why the story of Christ crucified reveals what is right with him. He did for us what nobody else could ever do. Not your boyfriend, not your best friend, not your spouse, not your child. He did for you what nobody else can. 
This is why after this moment, he cries from the cross, things begin to change. The curtain in the temple tore from top to bottom saying, we can now have access to God. We can now enjoy the presence of God. We can now step into relationship with God. The, tent, the curtain that, that divided worshipers from the holy of holies, the innermost presence of God, it tore from top to bottom. And then a centurion, the last person you would expect, a Roman Gentile, an outsider, would cry out, surely this is the Son of God. What you see happening there, Jesus went through the darkness of sin, death, and hell on the cross so that you and I never have to. He can come into our lives, and what does he do? He dispels the darkness of our lives. He removes judgment from us. He removes condemnation from us. He removes sin from us. He removes death from us. He gives us light so we can see the beauty of God in the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection so that we can come to an understanding of who Jesus is so that we may cry out, truly, he is the Son of God. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the king so that all of a sudden we are moved from focusing on our sin and what's wrong with us to focusing on what's right with Jesus. All of a sudden we're focusing not so much on us at all. We're focusing entirely upon Jesus so that in our salvation, what begins to change? What script begins to flip? Well, you begin to see that in our salvation, we no longer marginalize Christ, we centralize him. Christ crucified becomes the story of our life. Christ crucified becomes the defining reality of our existence. Christ crucified becomes everything. This is why Paul would say in his writings, I preach Christ crucified. It's all I focus on. I'm preaching the crucifixion of Christ as the hope of the world. This is what we do too. Christ isn't marginalized. Christ is centralized. No longer are we trivializing Christ. We magnify Christ. We make much of Jesus. We magnify him like a telescope. You know how telescopes work. Many of you are smarter than I am in this regard. A telescope takes these huge objects that seem small and shows them to be as big as they really are. How are you magnifying Christ in response to his crucifixion? How are you showing the world the bigness of Christ, the magnitude of Christ? How are you showing the beauty of Christ? This is what we do in our salvation. We cause Christ, who appears small in the minds and lives of the people we're engaging, that we're loving, that we're serving, and we help them see how big and glorious and grand Jesus really is. We do this every time we advocate for those who are hurting in this world. We do that every time we go to the defense of the defenseless. We do that every time we provide voice to the voiceless. We do that every time we empathize with those who are hurting. We do that every time we sympathize with those who are oppressed and afflicted. We do that every time we go and we engage, we magnify Christ. And then in our salvation, we're not replacing Christ, we're worshiping Christ. We understand that he cried in the dark hell's cry of forsakenness so you and I might step up and sing the song of salvation. We might sing the song of redemption. This is Revelation chapter 5, verses 9, 12, and 13. We sing this song. You, Jesus, were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, the wisdom and might and glory, honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's the song we get to sing. We worship Jesus. 
We honor Jesus. We praise Jesus because he was crucified. And then all of a sudden, we're no longer testing Christ, trying to get him to prove himself. We're just trusting Christ. In our salvation, we trust Christ. And what that means for you and I is we think about the type of world that we're living in now and all the chaos and the calamity that characterizes this world. What that means is that there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of injustice, there's a lot of oppression in this world and in our lives that we cannot explain. We cannot explain in particular detail. We can't answer why to all the decisions that are made. We can't answer why to why there are kids in Africa who do not have access to clean. The, the whys are are not always answerable. Why do people suffer the way that they do? Why do you suffer the way that you do? Well, when you begin to hear the story of Christ crucified, you look to the cross and see what's right with him, all of a sudden you discover what the answer is not. The answer to the questions of why in your life is not because you are unloved. It is not because God doesn't have his attention upon you. It does not mean God has forsaken you. You look to the cross and you discover what the answer is not. It isn't because you are unloved. You look to the cross and Jesus declares in all and no uncertain terms, you are loved. You are cared for. I died for you and this death has ignited a process and provides the power for setting all that is wrong in the world right. There is coming a day when Jesus returns and he wipes away every tear from our eyes. And he establishes his reign and his rule in the fullest sense. That's going to be a good day. And it's coming because Christ was crucified. So let's trust Christ now. Let's follow Christ now. Let's endure suffering now. Let's endure hardships now. Let's do hard, difficult things now. Let's make the most of the lives that we're given in this world as we move towards the world that is to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the story of Christ crucified would characterize our lives. Father, I know it's... It's hard for us to look at the cross and see what it says about us apart from you, but thank you, God, for sending your son Jesus and for him being what's right in this world. And, and I pray that you would give us grace to, to look to him and to see his rightness, to see his beauty, to see his glory, that we would come to him in salvation and, and magnify him and centralize him and worship him and trust him. God, would you help us? to do that even now as we journey through this world. God, we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.